Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Damien Holbrook's life reads like a drama he might review as a senior writer for TV Guide magazine. But being a closeted gay guy going to a Catholic high school in Philly in the 80s as you cultivate an appetite for alcohol is probably something you can't make up. Forget about the part where he bottoms out at a high school reunion and then gets sober. Would you imagine his life took off after that? Time to talk over 25 years of sobriety with my main man, Damien Holbrook. One of the TV industry's loudest voices. But first, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Peter? Yo. Yo, how's it going? You know, the last time I interviewed you, can you guess? Oh God! Was it for the Oscars? Yep, it was. It was for the Oscars. I was living in Springfield, Massachusetts. I had a radio show. I'd just been sober, maybe one or two years, and you were kind enough to come on and talk about the yeah. Oscars. It's probably like our seventh uh, anniversary, or something. Oh seventh God. or eighth well, year? Much, yeah, much, yeah. I think that was in 2013. Well, I, I, th- I, I think I have over nine years. Yeah. So let's start with you. So okay. what is what is your sobriety date? So, Friday date is uh, November second, nineteen ninety seven. What uh, what led to you getting sober? Was there any like meltdown or any like major event? Oh, uh, yeah, actually, it was. I had uh, I'd gone to my ten year class reunion and had uh, I went I went with a friend's uh, a friend of mine uh, who was married to another friend of mine. She and I had gone to the same high schools, and I went into a blackout during the the reunion, and I came out of it at a different location <laughs> with a different group of people. Uh, and when I was told the next day uh, what I had done in that blackout and the things that I had said to my friend uh, about her marriage and about her husband, it, it was all lies. Like I lied through my teeth to, to this woman, um, but apparently convincing enough that she was, uh, she was just devastated by the shit I said. And uh, that was when I realized and she actually, when they confronted me, uh, she's the one who said that if I didn't get help, I was going to die. And it was at that, like, that very moment. This, this podcast is about breaking the stigma to a degree. It's also about just getting the message out there. And you were one of those people. Right. I, I talk about, before I got sober, I read the book, Moments of Clarity. And, uh, and for whatever reason, being able to reach out and touch some of that stuff. You know, Moments of Clarity is a book by Christopher Lawford Kennedy, for folks who don't yeah. know. And it's celebrities talking about their experience getting sober. And like Alec Baldwin was in there. Jamie Lee Curtis was in there. So anyways, right. fast forward to like, I probably am a, a, a year sober. And I had Tina Fey's book. Uh, <laughs> and, I knew, and I knew you. And I'm reading Tina Fey's book. And there's like two pages dedicated to you. Not only about being her friend, childhood friend, but then about working for TV Guide and a story yeah. where, where you were a, you were a journalist and you quote unquote kind of kind of burn her a little bit, and then she, Which, she, she wait. By the way, that is not actually true, and I talked to her about that. We we like she 
has her timeline wrong. Everything I had on her was on tape, and I could tell her exactly when she said it. That, that section of the book, like, was um, that, she, and it's weird because she had actually talked to me about a bunch of things about the book, and that had never come up. Um, but I did tell her afterwards. I was like, actually, this was all on the record. So, um, yeah. So I didn't really burn her. It makes me look like I'm a skeezy, but regardless, you could tell she adored you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people that are when you're in early sobriety or early recovery and you just see something like that. I, I, you know, me seeing you out there being referenced by somebody like Tina Fey and me knowing that you were sober and really worked a program. That was like a, one of those breakthrough, like, like fist pumps, like, okay. Um, so, oh, yeah. And yeah. so that's, you know, that's, a, you. that's a roundabout way of, of telling you, thank you for, for doing this. And thank you for all the stuff you've done. You've I'm always sure. been pretty open about your recovery. Yes. Yes, I try to, I try to adhere to you know the the clear traditions of the program that I work to not like um, associate myself with a specific organization or you know speak on behalf of anything. Um, but I am sober and I'm very open about my recovery. Yes. So when did you first ever get loaded? Oh, first ever get loaded. All right, it will. I would place it within the first the 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 two weeks. Two or three weeks before Christmas of 1985. Yeah, 85. Um, I was a sophomore in high school, and I was the last of my friends to uh, drink in high school because I had been convinced that you, you couldn't drink because, you know, students against drunk driving and, and mothers against drunk driving and everybody against drunk driving, and then I drank. Uh, at, we were decorating my best friend's family's Christmas tree and they had a bar in the basement uh, which was basically like this finished basement where we watched all of our horror movies and we hung out and her parents uh, her dad made me a Manhattan oh her dad made it yes they were they were having drinks and they asked me if I wanted one um, because we were safe and in their house and this was the 80s so there was no uh, you know the world was not as litigious as it is now um, so he made me a Manhattan and I loved it. It tasted weird and almost medicinal, but I, I drank it like a shot instead of like a cocktail. So he poured me another one and that's when I got wrecked. And you were a sophomore, which is kind of a, which is kind of the time where in, uh, in high school, people start to drink around that age where it's just kind of like, uh, yeah. It just it's, it's it's the way it is in my experience. Did you notice that like you started to drink kind of? Well, in, in... then that back then, yeah, it was like freshman year. You know, there were like mixers at my high school and football games and and after parties and things like that where people did drink. Um, and I was so impressed upon by the media at the time to not drink. And also, I was raised in a non-drinking family. Nobody in my family was sober. They just didn't drink. Um, so it was one of those things that was, it was forbidden and I wanted to be, you know, a good boy. Uh, and then I started to see all of my friends falling into new social groups and they were all partying. Did you have alcoholism in your family at all that you know of? Uh, I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently we were warned about that, uh, as we entered high school age, my brothers and I, um, I don't remember being told, but apparently on both sides, uh, my father is from what I like to refer to as dog patch, Georgia. And his family is good old rednecks who drink themselves to death. 
and my mother's family is here from Philadelphia, and her father and her sister, and there was like uncles that you know always seem to be happy at every wedding and house party, but turns out they really loved their drink. Did so, so you said somebody warned you. Who warned you? Do you remember a warning, or did you forget oh, my, it? My parents. My okay. parents. Okay. <laughs> because when I when I went to my parents and told them that I was getting sober, uh, my father said, um, he had like, do you think you, you have a problem? And I said, yeah, definitely. He's like, you know, we, we tried to tell you guys about this, you know, when you were in high school, like you, you had to be careful about this stuff. And then they reminded me, I was like, wow, I may have been drunk when you told <laughs> me that. <laughs> yeah, it was a little yeah. too late, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, the, yeah, the train had already left the station by then. And honestly, I don't think a warning would have done any good anyway. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm a tenant of the same philosophy. Yeah, the disease was waiting for me. It would have found me either way. It would have, and I'm grateful in a way that it found me through alcohol um, because I, I don't think I would have survived um, the life of a drug addict. The way I drank, I would have overdosed immediately. How did your drinking progress when you start as a sophomore in high school? How does it go from so, there? It went from, so I was going to an all boys Catholic high school. And at the time I was a closeted fat gay kid. Um, so my drinking progressed almost instantly because as soon as I started drinking, I felt a lot different. A lot of that like self-loathing was gone the fear, the fear of being found out, the fear of being made fun of, because again, this is the 80s. Um, you know, AIDS is rampant, and anyone who's even remotely gay is a threat to mankind. I was abused mercilessly in high school. Um, you know, it's funny, because like back then, it was like you were teased. And when you can look at it back with sober eyes and, and hindsight, it's like, no, that was absolute full-on abuse and bullying and, and negligence on the part of the school um, to protect me. So uh, my drinking immediately became this thing that I sought out because it made me feel so different. It made me feel so much better. It made me feel uh, more than I thought I was. And it was an escape. It completely changed the way my mind worked. It completely changed the way I socialized. Uh, I was suddenly cool and funny and social uh, and you know, that worked for me because I needed, I needed to reinvent myself and alcohol allowed me to do that. Did you, uh, the people who teased you, were they your quote unquote friends or were they people who you, you didn't know? Like, like almost like bullies or were they, were they friends, right. were they friends who just use like, like language that we look at now and we're like, dude, you, you know. No. So that's the weird thing. So it's like my friends, because again, I was positive. My friends just ignored all the, the, the name calling, uh, when it was all the bullies and people that didn't matter to me as I was walking down the hallway or going to events or um, even on senior re you know, retreat, like this is a Catholic school. It's supposed to be like God centric and, and, and just the amount. So my friends just turned a blind eye to that. They never defended me um, because obviously you don't want to put yourself in the line of fire. So I did have friends and that's what I came to accept as what a relationship was, was um, people who ignored you when you needed them. How quickly does the abuse ramp up? Um, so there was still that battle to be like the good kid. 
you know, I was like an older boy and I was, you know, student class leadership and all this stuff. So I didn't want to get too much in trouble. Like if you got, if you got busted, you know, that was like in 1986, 87, that was the end of the world. So uh, my drinking, I, I re- like restrained it to weekends. Like I was a weekend warrior, but I l- looked forward to it so much that it's all I wanted to do. You know, by Wednesday, it was like, what are we doing this weekend? Where are we drinking? Which park are we going to? Who's getting it? Whose brother is old enough to get us stuff? Who's got the car? So there was already by that point, it was making decisions for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have the same experience where, and looking back as an alcoholic, every, the moment I drank, every move following that was predicated on the next drink. Like, like on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday, you're Mm -hmm. finding relief in planning for, for Friday or Saturday. Exactly. Right. And then it was like that panic of like, there are no plans this weekend. What are we going to do? Yeah. And the winter was the worst because, you know, we couldn't go do it outside because it's the East Coast and it's, you know, cold and rainy and snowy. So it was, you know, and again, like this was the insanity of it was like we would drive around drinking from a case of beer, like open, openly driving around drinking. It was insane. You know, everybody against alcohol, everybody against drunk driving. And the moment you... You start to drink, your moral compass flips. Oh, gone. Like, everyone had lied. (laughs) Like, Nancy Reagan was saying, Nancy Reagan was saying, just say no. I'm like, she clearly has not had enough. You know? (laughs) Absolutely. Why would you say no to this, Nancy? When you mentioned that, everything against drunk driving, the Nancy Reagan, that was so prominent. Um, Oh, yeah. But if you're like me or like you... Like you mentioned with your with your family in the morning, like nothing is going to stop that train. Once, nothing. once, yeah, I I feel like I nothing. it's a disease, and I'm programmed to be alcoholic. And yep. the moment yep. I drank, it, it literally like they talk about it. You know, like I started to give away pieces of myself. Um, you know, my integrity, my morality, my my acceptance of right and wrong. Those all started going away to to the service of of drinking. You know, and because at that time it wasn't hurting anyone and it was benefiting me, it was all fine. Anything bad happened to you in high school? No, no. In fact, that I think the, the sheer amount of things I got away with or escaped uh, culpability for kept me drinking longer, I think. Uh, I did not get in trouble. I... You know, I was out drinking with a group of friends one night on a golf course, and I went back to one of the cars to get more beer when my friends down on the golf course got raided. So I just got in the car and drove away with the lights off. <laughs> and you got away? Yeah. Got away. Um, in, at prom, at the senior prom, because I was on the prom committee, I knew that the cars were being checked in the parking lot at a specific time during the evening uh, and then realized that we had been pre-gaming and left some stuff in the car. So armed with the knowledge of when they were going to go out to it, I just went out earlier as part of the prom committee to make sure everything was on, you know, on point and got rid of the stuff that would have incriminated us. So you were, you were very busy, by the way, like on the prom committee. You, you know, I, I'm getting the idea that you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're very involved socially. Super, You've always been successful, I, right? You've always been No, I was driven. a very late bloomer. So I was a late bloomer as far as life in high school because I was so closeted and so afraid of things. But once I started drinking and stopped um, trying to kill myself, 
I was then able to put on this armor forged in alcohol to really kind of become very social because I became known as like, like the party boy and the guy who was, you know, willing to say the stuff that nobody else would say because he was drunk and he could get away with it. You hear people say, you know, drinking was the answer. It certainly sounds like it was like that for you at an early age. Oh yeah. It was the answer and it was the remedy. To all the problems I had. Were you? Was it easier for you to express your sexuality once you started to drinking, or was it easier to su- suppress it? It was. So it was. It's funny. I was recently thinking about that because I didn't come out until I was twenty six, um, even after college. But when I was drunk, I could behave gay, and people thought it was funny because it was like almost like I was imitating gay. You know. Yeah. So they just thought like, oh, he's really funny. Like he, like he, like acts like that. So you go to college. You're you're drinking. Would you would you call it? I'm not gonna put words in your mouth. Would you call it like living a lie? Oh, totally. Okay. Totally living a lie because here I am trying to pass myself off as like the model son and the model student. And high school was easy. Once I got to college, that became a lot harder um, because that's when I started drinking daily. Uh, on campus. I went to Temple University. Uh, I was drinking daily. I was working at the school newspaper. I was adding a lot of uh, dry goods to the mix. Um, and then it was really hard to keep that balance of the good guy because I was always hungover. I was always missing things. I was always kind of like MIA from appointments. Uh, and I always had to have an excuse. People that don't know dry and goods, that, we're talking about drugs, by the way. Yes, yeah. Um, so that's when I started to like kind of bail on relationships, screw over friends, um, get very careless with people's emotions and and belongings. Uh, started to steal a lot. Started to lie a lot. Um, yeah, it was. That's college was definitely the lawless years and you're still you're still moving forward though professionally like uh, you know because i mentioned you were busy in high school and now you know you're you're oh yeah you've achieved a lot of success as a journalist and so you're already writing i i take it in college so i got to college right went to to school for journalism and immediately got onto the school newspaper started to kind of just build my resume um was working as a film critic and doing tv reviews and interviews and things like that so where where are you doing the stuff for for the newspaper locally or you or anywhere else for the news for the school newspaper and then for the south philly review which was a newspaper right outside of philadelphia or part of philadelphia and uh you know so was doing all this and also working full-time running managing a video store uh and taking full course load so and it's funny i was just talking about this with a friend about the amount, it is staggering how much alcoholics can get done in the grips of a disease. You know, the fact that, you know, like on top of school and two jobs and writing, I was also managing all the lies, all the the twisted relationships, all of the, you know, obligations that I could fulfill. Like it was a two full-time jobs of being an alcoholic and being a human. Do you think that you did that to kind of mask like, hey, like, look, I can't, oh, yeah. I can't be an alcoholic. Look how busy I am. Oh, yes. As long as – so there was a point when I was uh, – I was just finishing college. I was working at a video store. and a, What was the name of the video store, worked, by the way? I got to ask. It 
was a blockbuster video. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, a young woman that I worked with and went to school with uh, expressed her concerns about my drinking to uh, some, some customers of the video store who one of them was a doctor. And he took me aside and he asked me and, you know, was very friendly with them because they would come in regularly. And he took me aside and he asked me what I would come to find out were the 20 questions uh, that, that a lot of like rehabs and, and programs will ask alcoholics. Uh, he asked me these 20 questions about, did I, you know, seek out lower companions when I was drinking? Did I ever lose track of time? Did I, you know, all these things And all of my answers were yes, but, you know, it was like, yes, but if I'm drinking alone, it's just because I'm waiting to go meet up with people or yes, you know, like, yes, I would seek, I would hang out with people that I felt were kind of scummy, but those were the people that really had fun with me, you know? Um, and afterwards he said, he's like, Damien, you know, if you were, if you were a patient of mine, I would probably uh, diagnose you as a functioning alcoholic. And all I heard was functioning. <laughs> and I was like, right, exactly. I was like, I'm still doing well in school. I've got the job. Like I'm doing like, right. Like this is kind of the best of both worlds. Did you figure at that point, this is something that I'm just going to do for the rest of my life? It was actually something that I planned to do for the rest of my life. Like it wasn't at that point, I still wasn't kind of seeing the bad side of it. Uh, there was panic attacks. There were bad relationships, but like I was just talking them up to being near early twenties, you know, like that's what everyone goes through. I saw Melrose place. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> You know, and then it wasn't until I I got hired um, to the job I, I still have, which is amazing, um, with TV Guide magazine. And I was three years into the job, and by that point, I that's when I realized that this is this is going to be this is probably going to be something I'm stuck with for the rest of my life. I remember specifically looking in the mirror of this shithole apartment of mine. And thinking, okay, well, my brothers will have the happy life, and I will be stuck with this one. And then you, you don't see any way out of it. Like a blockbuster, it's a blast, and you look forward to it. And now right. you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm stuck with this. Right. In, three, now in, in, now in a couple now of years. Like, I've started a career. Right. I've started a career. I, you know, a career that I love, uh, and I was putting at risk daily. Um, and yeah, within three years and probably only within like a year and a half where things, things, bad things started to happen to people around me. Again, like one of those things where maybe I was born under a lucky sign, but um, like a, a good friend of mine had a terrible car accident uh, in a blackout, had to be cut out of the car. It was upside down. He had taken out a telephone pole. It was terrifying. And that scared me sober for about three days. Uh, a boss who had taken me out for a promotion got a DUI after dropping me off after a night of drinking, you know? So there were like these close calls, little, they, right. All these close calls. Like I was with these people an hour before calamity. And I started to think eventually my number might come up. Uh, but again, nothing was stopping me. Were you drinking at all before? Cause I, with, with blockbuster, I thought about this. Were you drinking at all before work? Not before work. I was drinking at work. Yeah, I had this weird rule uh, that I wouldn't drink 
in the a.m. So that would that meant like five o'clock and beyond. How would um, how would you drink at work? work? Like a blockbuster? How would you pull that off? So, so blockbuster was open till midnight, and with closing the store, you wouldn't get out of there sometimes until after one a.m. And bars here in Pennsylvania closed at two. So I was like, well, I'm not going to get to really enjoy time at the bar. Uh, so I need to kind of do it here. So I would have, uh, I had some customers who came in who I would give free rentals if they brought a six pack. Yeah, it sounds like a plan. Yeah. And then you get three or four customers doing that. Then they, you know, that somebody, you're getting a free case a night for them to get like a free copy, you know, a free rental of Terminator 2. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I would just keep it in the office or the, the break room in the refrigerator. And, you know, it was a bunch of young people. So there were there were a few of us that drank on the job. Did you feel like when you, when you were writing, did you drink at all when you were writing? And if you did, did you feel like the old stories like Hemingway, did you feel like it made you a better writer? Oh, right. Oh, so that was like, that was that big narrative that I had sold myself. Uh, and meanwhile, like, I was not doing any writing like Hemingway. I was literally writing, you know, listings for Baywatch. And, you know, cooking shows. But then I started to handle bigger shows and I was drinking and I would take, back then, we would get scripts from TV shows uh, to read and then write up little articles about whatever. And I would take a stack of these scripts and I would go to this bar by my apartment and I'd get hammered while reading these scripts. And as the night would progress, the notes that I would take on the shows would get more and more absurd absurd and then just illegible the next day i wouldn't even understand some of them um so that i would have actual physical proof of like okay this was clearly this episode i read during my first couple drinks and then this one was definitely in the bag looking back do you see like shame connected to that you know like reading the next day like oh man i was messed up no because i would just reread it and do it again like fix like repair my damage before anyone knew about it. So there was, it was still like I was running this long con on myself. Yeah. Uh, the shame, the shame didn't really settle in until after I got sober. And so how did you get like, like as it progresses, cause you're still kicking ass on paper, which is great. I used to love to do that. Like I, it, yeah. cause I would, I would have these jobs, right. which people were like, Oh, he's doing okay. But like you got close enough to me and I was going to burn yeah. you. Did you have, Oh yeah. So were people pushing you to stop drinking people who got close enough to you? Yes. I had friends who were constantly saying, you need help. You're an alcoholic. You, and, and so those friends I pushed away. Um, those were friends that I needed to disconnect from. And those were also, this was happening at that point in your life where they were like getting married and buying houses and having kids. So they were distracted enough that I was able to use that against them and be like, you've abandoned I'm going to go hang out with this new group of friends who let me drink as much as I wanted to. Where's the sexuality at, but at this point? So I'm at this point, I guess like I'm at 26 years old, I'm living with two friends and I don't know what, I don't know what inspired it. There wasn't like anything. I just thought like, I, I was just kind of tired of it. So I was just like, we need to take care of this. And I just started coming out to people and like 98% of them knew. Yeah. Like, yeah, like they were all like, thank God, you know, like, and some of them were even like, 
now you'll be, you know, like you'll be so much happier now because I've gotten so miserable and toxic from alcoholism that they're assuming that all of that misery and anger and aggression and rage that I'm carrying around and expressing is because I'm closeted. Did you convince yourself of that? No, I actually didn't think I was that bad. Okay. But that's, that's what, that's what I mean. Like, did you, okay. So so were you like, yeah, like that makes sense. Like you're right. Right. I was like, Oh, this is like, this will be a new beginning. Like this will, this will kind of be a blank slate. And they were like, maybe you'll stop drinking so much. Like you're not hiding so much. And you know, I only had a couple of friends who were like, really, are you sure? Don't you want to have kids? I'm like, okay, well, first of all, those are not mutually exclusive. Um, and also no, because I'm incredibly selfish and children are messy. Um, and then I was, I was like, oh, this, you know, like, why aren't I getting happier? Like, I should have been so relieved. I should, I didn't have the, the, the experience you hear. Like, I'm not Colton Underwood, where I come out and I get my own freaking TV show. I came out and just kept drinking as much as I wanted to. <laughs> So, so you're 26. I didn't get it. My gay guide was just a bartender at the gay bar down in Philly. <laughs> so, I didn't get Gus Kenworthy. So you get so, or I'm sorry, you come out at 26. How, 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 like, what is the drinking like up until you get sober? Because you think that this is going to be a clean oh. slate, and this is like a landmark. Oh, it deal. is. It is like rocket fuel to my drinking. At this point, it's like. I think I used it for, like, I'm celebrating. I'm the, my genuine self. Like, well before people were saying you're living your best life, I was using it as an excuse to, like, live my best life. I was drinking a ton more openly, doing a lot more drugs, um, associating, like, because now it's like I'm going to a gay bar every And that, like, let me tell you, if you've never drank in a gay bar, you I do have. not know what you're missing. Because, yeah. <laughs> okay, they... I don't know what kind of alcohol they use, but it's always like a hundred proof more than normal alcohol. Like those drinks are designed to get you on the dance floor and then on your back, I think. So we would go to these bars and just get ripped. And then it's like a 24 hour cycle, you know, of drink, like waking up, still drunk, going into work, still drunk, drinking at lunch, drinking after work, drinking back at the apartment or back at another bar. And that is the last two years of my drinking. There were, I couldn't tell you that, like, I would love to say that there were like sober weekends. Like there were times where maybe we went undercover, we call it and not drink, but that wouldn't even last 24 hours. How was your health? Horrible. I was like 310 pounds. Um, I was chain smoking. I was putting everything possible into my body at this point. I, I think I got more self-destructive and self more, more self-loathing after I came out because nothing got better. Oh, wow. You know, like I felt like I didn't even come out right. Um, and so I'm crying every day. My mental health is a, is a wreck. I'm having mini breakdowns at the drop of a hat. I'm suicidal again. I'm writing a suicide note every day on this, you know, this laptop. Um, I'm, I'm so miserable. I, and again, crying every day. And I eventually couldn't hold it together. And I was at work and I went into my boss's office and this was somebody I drank with. And I was like, I, I think I'm having an actual breakdown. I think, I, I think I'm on the verge of a psychotic break because I, I can't breathe. My vision is getting blurry. 
I'm panicking, I'm sweating, I'm freezing, I, all that. And she was like, again, it was one of those things where, because I was doing so well, it was, you know, like, you're taking everything too seriously. You need to calm down. You're doing great. You've got everything by the, you know, like, you've got the world in your hands. You've got all this potential, blah, blah, blah. She's like, let's just call it a day and we'll, let's go get a couple drinks and use this, you know, like, soften these edges. And that's how I treated it, was just throw more drinks on it. By the way, real quick, I want to just just uh, go back. So you said suicidal again. Before you drank, you, you had some, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you had some bouts. Uh, in high school, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. of the sexuality stuff and, the, and, and just like feeling oh, yeah. boxed and in. The abuse, like the bullying, yeah, the bullying and the sexual, yeah, the, just. Um, and you know, it's, just, it was horrible. And so the, so the drinking is the answer for so long. And, right. now, and now here it is again. It's, it's turned on Exactly. You. And that's like the ultimate, like the ultimate slap in the face. It's like the thing that saved me from wanting to kill myself eventually made me want to kill myself. And how long from that conversation, you know, which I'm sure is just kind of like a, a good flashpoint, but that conversation you have with your boss till you get sober? Um, probably six months. And so that, that, that reunion, that high school reunion is six months after yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, because that was probably the spring of 97. Um, and then my my reunion was uh, Halloween weekend of 97. And so you crash and burns. Take me through, you know, right. November 1st or of 1997. Like, what is so, that like? Yeah. So I wake up on the couch. I had this big green couch. I woke up on that and I was so sick and so like, I felt like my organs were shutting down, like everything inside hurt, like just moving hurt. My head, my head was already in a state, like a perpetual state of, of headache. Um, I was taking, I was taking Tylenol hand over fist. Um, but I woke up and I was just, I felt depleted, like physically and emotionally depleted. I just didn't know what I could do. So I just lay on the couch all day long. And then uh, my friend Dean who was married to my friend, Anne, who I'd gone to the reunion with, uh, he called me and he said that we needed to discuss my behavior at the reunion. And now I'm thinking, good, because I went to that reunion with Anne, your wife, and she was nowhere to be found when I came out of my blackout at another bar. Like, I don't know where she went, thinking like she ditched me. And then she, now remember this is the late 90s, so people are on their landlines. So she's upstairs on, on one line and he's on the downstairs line and they start telling me uh, the shit I said to her about, you know, Dean and their marriage and fidelity and all this crap. And none of it is true. Not like whatever I've said to her is not true. Like they have an incredible marriage. Yeah. Um, and I'm uh, apparently just sitting there making up tons of lies and, and clearly with the intention of just hurting her. And I don't know why, because she's a friend of mine. And she's never done anything to hurt me. So they go on and tell me all this stuff. And they say how, like, how abusive I was to other people at the event. And then I fled the party, apparently, and got in a car with all these other people and went to this other bar. This is a reunion, by the way. So it's like people you haven't seen in a while. Oh, it's like some of these people I have not seen in 10 years. Yeah. Um, and after they finished telling me all this stuff, I remember saying to them, that I, and I, I had been apologizing for my behavior to people for at least half a decade at this point. 
Um, and I said, you know, like, I can't even muster up an apology this time because I don't remember doing any of this stuff. None of this sounds even remotely familiar to me, but it definitely sounds like something I'm capable of. And that's when my friend Anne said, if you do not get help, you're going to die. And she knew it because she had family in recovery. Uh, that's she what, saw all the signs. I was about to ask you, so who was your lifeline in recovery? Was there Who did you call? Who picked you so, up? Who talked to you? There was, so she says that to me and I immediately know she's right. And I have no option. Like, I don't, like, there's no game plan in place. Like, my identity is drinking. But I, there was a guy that I worked with who drank, I would say, like, back then, it was like, he was far worse than me because he would be the guy that, like, passed out in public. He'd be the guy who would, like, lose his verbal skills. You know, like, he was the mess. And I at least, like, maintained a certain, you know, level of decorum. But he got sober about six months before this all happened. And he had gone to rehab after work and this program, like, this after work program. And he had stopped partying with us and stopped, like, associating with us because he had to. Um, he had broken up with this girl that we were, you know, friends with. And, and he was putting his life together. And he looked good. He was showing up to work. He wasn't throwing up at work anymore, which is something that a lot of us did, which was so horrible. Um, he looked good. He'd lost weight. He looked healthier. And I knew, I knew that he had gone and gotten help. And I remember thinking like, oh, thank God he really needed it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, like, you know, the worst drunk in the room is going to be like, oh, you need help. So I reached out to him and I had never talked to him about his recovery. I'd never congratulated him on anything. Um, kind of just cut them off because what do you do when someone stops drinking and that's all you do? Yeah. You cut them off. Um, so I reached out to him and he, uh, he replied immediately that he would get back to me that night after he went to a meeting. And again, I know nothing about, like, I know that there are meetings and, but we've never talked about that. He does. He's never told me he goes to meetings or anything like that. So I'm like, whatever. And, uh, he called me that night and I asked him uh, point blank uh, how, it, how he knew that he was an alcoholic. And he said that he was the last to find out. And he progressed to just tell me basically his version of what had happened and, you know, what it was like now. And then, you know, he's telling me all these things and his story had absolutely nothing to do with my story. Like he was this straight, you know, wealthy kid of divorce athletic, you know, all this stuff. And, and I'm all, all like, I'm none of that. And, uh, everything that he talked about, everything that he said made absolute sense to me. Like it, it all sounded normal to me. Like the sadness, the emptiness, the inability to control what happened when he started drinking, the, you know, the willingness to get rid of healthy relationships in, in exchange for terrible toxic relationships. Um, all of that made sense to me. And when he finished, he said, do you think you're an alcoholic? And I said, I don't think I have any other option. You know, like I, I, all of the evidence that you've just presented to me is irrefutable. Like this is, this is what I've got. When you said and that, he, did anything wash over your body? Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. And he what? Oh my God. Yeah. Like, so I got off the phone with him. He was like, he said, okay, just don't drink tonight. Um, 
and I will get you information tomorrow. It's going to be okay. Just don't drink tonight. I have not had a drink. Um, I got off the phone with him, and yeah, I was, I, you know, it's kind of like a ghost story as far as I'm concerned. Like, a lot of people do not have this, this experience, but I truly felt at that moment that this crazy obsession to pour alcohol into my system and blot out reality was alleviated. If only for that moment, I felt more relief and peace of mind than I had felt in probably 16 or 17 years. When did you tell your parents? Uh, I waited until I had two weeks. Because I didn't want to be the guy who like, you know, like, oh, I'm quitting smoking. And then 24 hours later, they're outside smoking. You know, like I didn't want to be, I didn't want to set anybody up for any more disappointment on my behalf. So I kept it quiet uh, until I, with my parents until I had two weeks. And then my friends until I had a month. Dude, it's like you're already learning because I'm hearing, I know you and I'm hearing the story and we're talking about anything but a quiet guy. But you're, you're, yeah. al you're already yeah. learning in sobriety, right? Yeah. Like, okay, here's how. Yeah. It, it was one of those things, like the first thing I like attached myself to was the an anonymity. Like, this is nobody's business, you know, except for mine. You know, like I, nobody's, like they, they didn't need to be a party to it. This was the shit that I had to take care of. I was so reliant on other people to fix my mistakes. I knew this one was the one I had to do on my own. And what is those first two weeks like? What is that first month like? You know, that first. <laughs> oh, my God. Horrifying. Um, I honestly feel like I walked around with, I don't think I blinked in the first two weeks <laughs> because I was so shell-shocked by the fact that I was not drinking. Uh, I would wake up or go to bed kind of baffled and have to like write down all of the things I had done to make sure that there wasn't a point where I just inadvertently drank because it was so second nature to me. Um, I went to a meeting every day. I started to pray, um, which was weird because I, I was Catholic and I was an altar boy, but this was a totally different kind of praying. Um, I started smoking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was chain smoking Marlboro Light, and I was going through probably a bag of low-fat Oreos every two days. Whatever gets you there. And whatever got me there. And then um, after probably about two weeks, and I was meeting people all along, and, and I met a group of, of young people at my first couple meetings who kind of took me under my wing, or under their wing, and they kind of just started to harass me as far as like, come for coffee, come for more coffee. Meet us for coffee here, like a lot of coffee. Um, and so, and a lot of bookstores. Back then there was like Barnes and Noble and Borders and like there were tons of bookstores with coffee shops in them. So we would go to those and um, it was so awkward and, and uncomfortable and terrifying. But every day ended with me kind of baffled that I had not drank. And how did the next morning feel? Oh my God. I did not know that there was so much going on in the world before like 9.30, <laughs> 10 o'clock. Like I, I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do with the extra time. Like I would, I took a second job. <laughs> like aside from TV, aside from my full-time job, I took a, 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 like a retail job near my apartment, partially to like um, keep myself busy on weekends. 
and also to build up some some money because being an active alcoholic with a fondness for drugs uh, is expensive, and I needed to dig myself out of a hole. Uh, and also, you know, he'd go out to coffee six or seven times a week. That also adds up. Yeah. So what about work? Are you uh, an outcast at work because you stopped drinking or do people like, oh, thank gosh, <laughs> or well, how, how did that work? Yeah, so with the, with the coworkers, that was probably, I probably went two or three weeks before I said anything to them, and they were so relieved. Uh, I remember this one woman that I worked with that I really liked. Her name was uh, Karen. Um, she was actually harder to convince because she, I, I, she might have had somebody in her past, but she expressed like, you know, like she was very grateful and happy for me. But she pointed out like I was very volatile when I drank, and that wouldn't go away overnight. Like her her perception of me wouldn't go over away overnight, and that was fair. Um, but everyone else was, you know, like this is great. You've got this. You, you know. They were really supportive. How did you hang on to your job? I mean, you got a kick-ass job, and you didn't yeah. lose it, and you kept it the whole time. No, it was a weird kind of confluence of very bad luck on one person's part and very good luck on mine. Like, there were there were things going on that, were, you know, my drinking was, you know, in tandem with some coworkers and some some colleagues. So we were doing it a lot together, uh, and some of those people that were doing it with us were, you know higher up the masthead and so we were protected mm, okay you know and then when the, the house of cards started to fall apart it falls apart from the top and so they suffered you know they came you know like the the, the the boss who got the dui you know things like that and then i was getting sober right at that moment and so suddenly i was out of the line of fire again um so i was able to really and again, because of the job that I loved and I was kind of good at even in an altered state, I worked really hard to make sure that it didn't suffer. And before, before we get you know, go, go forward in your, in your uh, you know, journey in recovery and sobriety, when you, you do a lot of stuff now where you're out and about with A-list celebrities, you're hosting panels, you're interviewing superstars. Were you out in the public when you were drinking and using um, before you got sober? No. <laughs> oh, my God, no. No, I didn't get to do any of that. And thank God. Thank God I was able to be sober for about two or three years before I even was put in, like, physical proximity to any celebrity. Um, I was really just a writer, and I was doing phone interviews and things like that, but none of that stuff came until I was probably three or four years sober. And because, again, like, you start to show up a little bit more and you start being able to take on more and be more reliable and you've got a cleaner head. Um, I started to make myself not indisposable, but like put myself at their disposal, you know, like use me, you know, if you need this done, let me know. And so they started to get me media training and put me on local television, some satellite feed radio tours, things like that. And that proved to be something that they kind of liked me doing as well. And then that, the snowball effect of that led to these panels. And so I was probably sober, probably 10 years, eight years maybe before I did like my first live panel. And that was at New York Comic Con. 
How was that, you know, in sobriety? Was there uh, any fear uh, that came with that or was it a situation? A, Go ahead. A little bit. There was a little bit of fear. Um, I never really thought like, oh God, I wish I could like take a drink to ease the fear because I knew that would make me, that would render me incomprehensible on stage. And, and I need to be there for this cast and I need to be there for the fans and I need to do a good job. Um, so really what sobriety had actually helped me do is you get used to kind of talking in public at meetings and things like that. Um, so it actually helped me be more comfortable on stage in front of people, in front of a microphone, and a little more honest and loose, which is great because then the cast and the actors feel that and uh, they feel a little bit more taken care of. Isn't that amazing? And I think that goes for anybody. You know, there's different degrees, right? You are, you've always been an outgoing person and kind of an orator. But even somebody who's, you know, just doesn't feel comfortable in a room full of people and talking, everybody gets a little better and a little more comfortable in that respect. I mean, forget about the fact that you just saved your life and, and you have a, like right. a brand right. new one right. that's incredible. But it also yeah. does help as far as that's concerned. Oh, oh, it's incredible. Like, it's such, like, and people have asked, like, where did you learn to, you know, handle yourself like that? How come you don't get scared? I'm like, um, you know, like if you've spoken to a room full of people who, you know, used to live in tenements and have been shot and stabbed and robbed their own parents, you know, when you speak to a room full of that, a room full of supernatural fans, they're easy. (laughs) (laughs) So as you start to really get sober, let's go back a year or two uh, sober. What are you doing to make yourself feel better? Because one of the first things uh, that I, I think that people really have trouble wrapping their mind around when they're even thinking about getting sober is I'm never going to feel this way again. I need, right. I need this feeling. How did you replace that feeling? Just a lot of fellowshipping with people in, you know, like in sobriety, forming relationships, doing things that I didn't really want to do bowling a lot. Um, and then you know, I've made friends with some people who were sober longer than me, who were actually like really healthy friends to have. And they kind of helped me get a little bit more focused on my physical health and joined Weight Watchers. And then I started going to the gym and started having results from that. Uh, and so that like in the first couple of years, it was a lot of just going out to coffee and bowling and movies and house parties with sober people. And then after a couple of years, starting to really take care of my physical sort. How did you start dating again and stuff? Because, you know, whether you're gay or straight or whatever you are, for me, that was one of the most difficult components of sobriety. So hard, especially because, you know, I remember reading very early on in my recovery that the gay community there was this like crazy statistic of like one out of three had a substance abuse issue. I was like, awesome. I'm like, good. Our numbers are low as it is. And now I get to reduce it by two thirds. Um, it was difficult because first of all, there wasn't like grinder back then. Uh, and I wanted to kind of date somebody sober, but then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start dating. And that was the biggest challenge was just like putting myself out there. And realizing the first date doesn't have to be you getting completely hammered and doing something that you regret the next morning. You know, the first date can be coffee and a walk through the park or the art museum. Um, so it was, it that was probably that was probably scarier than doing any of the celebrity stuff I've done. <laughs> 
And I was, it was just like, oh, do I have to go be my authentic self with a stranger? And they are like job interviews anyway. I, I was talking to a new guy about um, dating, and, and, and he was, you know, the guy's got everything going for him, but just like you or I or anybody else that's getting into sobriety, he was timid about going on dates. And he said, um, I'm thinking about starting a dating app. And I started to mess with him a little <laughs> bit, just to play on words. I go, you, you're thinking about creating your own app? He's, he looked at me dead oh, in the no. eyes. He said, dude. I would rather create my own app than actually use one and go on a date right now. That's how nervous oh I am. Oh, my God. That's the feeling. Yeah. You get that nervous, and, and those are all the things. Dating is one of those things where I used to oh, drink. Yeah. I used to drink every time before I did it. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, with for straight people primarily, like, it's easier because you're at least going to meetings, and if you want to date somebody in sobriety, you know, you're kind of getting the insight on these people when they – share about what they're going through so you know straight people can pick off you know, somebody from the program um there's not that many gay people in the meetings that i go to so it's not like i'm you know even surrounded by them did you find yourself being surrounded by just a higher quality of person i mean of course you did but how did that change oh. go as you as you continue to get sober because we talk about it right lesser companions right. um sort of right, places right. And, but and everything starts to improve is that that was those thing where it was like, it was so superficial and so narcissistic on my part of like lower being, you know, lower companions being like where they were from or what their job was or their background. And, you know, I had even tried to have like fancy friends who were just morally bankrupt and, and cruel. Uh, and the people that I started to associate with in, in sobriety, you know, they come from all walks. Uh, you know, they say Yale to jail. I've yet to meet anyone from Yale. Uh, but like the quality of person, it's all, it's all that inside stuff. Like I, I didn't know that there were so many people that were capable of the kindnesses that I've seen in recovery. You know, I didn't know that there was an entire community of people who are working to make themselves better. And the best way they can do that is to help make someone else better. You know, what is that? So, been, what has that been like for you? I mean, we're talking about I'm talking to you now. You're taking me on a journey and we're talking about a quantum leap. You know, somebody who's suicidal before yeah. before they drink, struggling with their sexuality. And now you're out and about. You're talking to me about doing esteemable things, you know, experiencing yeah. the help that people have to give, helping people yourself. What is that? I mean, do you ever stop and think about that? Constantly, constantly. There's some like. So my mom passed away when I was five years sober and that was the worst thing that I'd ever been through. And we were good. Like we were, we were good when she passed away. Um, because after five years of sobriety, I was kind of closer to the son she had always hoped I would be. Um, but when I was a kid, you know, we would always, I would always be told I was in great, like was an ingrate, you know, like everything I was given, everything that they did for me, like I was just, I never showed gratitude for it. And then, in recovery, you know, staying grateful is, is a key component to um, kind of a long-term happiness. So I've always tried to stay grateful in, in, in my recovering life. And so I'm constantly reflecting on the things I'm grateful for. And it's never things. It's always the people. You know, I, I just like knowing somebody like you and watching somebody come in and have absolutely no clue as to what is going on or how this works and to see what you're doing now and following a dream that, you know, 
because so many people come in and they say they want to do something, you know, like you just don't think they're going to follow through. That, that stick-to-itiveness um, at match with skill very rarely, you know, collide. And you, like, not only has it done that with you, but, like, you took huge leaps of faith to leave your home area to do what you love. You know, and I watch you and I see these clips that you post and you, you, you're not only doing what you love, but clearly the people you're doing it with love you. Uh, thank you. you know, for and again, like that's taking somebody like that's taking somebody who was a mess of a human who did not have a great scorecard. And to see what you're doing now. Okay, let's, you know, let's do is, everybody a favor. I'm going to stop you because I just thought of this. Okay, now, and, and a good example of recovery is, you know, it took me 10 years to get one year. Uh, I, yeah. I, my sobriety date is November 7, 2011. My first meeting was in October of 2002. You were there. Um, wow. Was it Villanova? No, it was at St. David's. And St. David's, okay. It was the meeting where you shared with me later that I was like putting my head down on a desk. Oh my God, yes. Oh God, I love that meeting. <laughs> I remember you telling me like I had my head down on my desk. I was trying to like blow bubbles on the desk. I don't know what I was uh-huh. doing. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I came out of it um, eventually, yeah. but it just showed, I mean, I was as hopeless as you could get. Yeah. And honestly, like people that saw you come in, they didn't have a lot of hope <laughs> because, you know, some people come in and you're like, well, they might have fried their motherboard. I don't know if going to be able to follow this and you know but you did because again like 10 years to get a year you kept showing up because you knew yeah. you knew they're part of you know like and that's something that you know they talk about you know once once you get a taste of sobriety you know that's that's what you need what do you do today to stay because so, you're vigilant man and you, your career continues to take off we're not making this a mutual admiration society but everywhere i turn around I see you, uh, and I see you with celebrities. I see you interviewing people. F- real quick, out of curiosity, have you ever been in a situation where you're interviewing somebody like Jennifer Lopez and you think to yourself, man, I can't believe I'm here? Yep. I, there, it's usually I can't believe they let me do this and if they only knew. <laughs> like, I still think, like, I was interviewing um, Daniel Radcliffe. And, and I'd actually interviewed him a couple times, and, and one time he remembered me. And I was like, fucking Harry Potter remembers who I am. And if he only knew what trash I was, <laughs> it's something that I always think of. I'm like, God, I, I cannot believe how lucky I am to still be alive. How do you, pay, how do you give back? I mean, because you're, you're, you're very involved. But as far as sobriety is concerned, and you mentioned the fellowship, what does the fellowship look like now? You're that guy that has been around for, you know, 25 plus. Right. Right. Um, well, that was something I never wanted to be the guy who, who had a lot of time and wasn't around, you know, like I didn't want to get all the good stuff and then fail on recovery or people that, that need it. Um, so I still attend meetings in, in this pandemic. I mean, there have been weeks where I've done eight or nine a week because it's so easy to set a link. Um, doing a lot of like reach out and uh, text and calls to guys in the program that are struggling or maybe just need to be reminded that they're okay. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I work with guys uh, to, you know, help them maintain their sobriety 
all the things that I was taught, all the things that were done for me, I just try to replicate. What do you do when you're feeling like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm having a rough day or what do you, you know, when you're feeling edgy uh, because, you know, untreated alcoholism is there for all of us yeah. and it happens. What do you, how, how do you write that ship? Well, sometimes I don't and I just let it ride out and you know, like I get a little self-indulgence and allow myself a couple days of self-pity. Um, and I, but I'm also at least conscious of letting somebody in my circle know that I'm in that space. Like my, you know, like my sponsor or one of my sponsees, I'll say like, I'm not feeling great. I'm not in a great mood. I'm in a mood. It'll pass. And I fight, you know, that, that temptation to like overeat or over shop or gossip or, you know, any of those other isms that I can act out on. Um, and other times I will, if I know that I'm in a bad place and I'm feeling low or something, I will try to reach out to somebody else who's not feeling great um, or just tell somebody this is where I am and let them try to help me. How do you function? Because, I mean, a part of your job and a part of your life, how do you function with people outside of, of sobriety? You know, how, how is your life taken off as far as relationships with people oh. who are outside of the program? So that's that's something that I there's there's this like kind of thinking in portions of the, of the, the community that like people who aren't alcoholics can't understand what alcoholics go through and all this stuff. And I don't subscribe to that because something that my mom did impart on me very early on and for a long time was like alcoholics don't have the corner market on suffering. Every human being is fighting some sort of battle. Every human being has something going on. And that has, that has changed the dynamic of all of my relationships with people who are not in recovery because it is added like this depth of understanding and empathy where, you know, I'm able to have conversations with friends that I have had for years, you know, for like 20 years that after 20 years was able to have conversations with them about how they're feeling, not what they're doing. And those are the kind of relationships you have with people today for the most part, right? I mean, yeah. and that's pretty unbelievable yeah. people. Those are the people that end up in your life. Exactly. And the people that stayed in my life, I can now kind of like repay them for putting up with all the crap I put them through by actually being there for them emotionally, for being there and being a good example for their kids, for showing them what like a loyal friend looks like. Um, you know, it's really, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's something that, I don't think I ever realized would be something in my life that I would have. Like you, you form relationships with people in, in recovery that are very deep and very meaningful and very rooted in, in a common struggle and a common solution. But you can have that same, those same kind of relationships with people outside of recovery. Because again, like they're all going through something. So, you know, a friend of mine who I know struggles with her weight, you know, I can be very open with her about my struggles with that and how. By the way, you mentioned you were 310 pounds. How much? What are you like? Yeah. I mean, you you've lost a lot of weight. I well, I have done the very alcoholic thing of losing a ton of weight and then <laughs> putting it back on and then losing some more and then putting it back on. Um, you know, and I don't even think that's an alcoholic. That's just a human thing. Yeah. Um, I'm somewhere like in the lower 240s right now. Yeah. Um, I first time I. First time I tried all this, I got very alcoholic and lost like 118 pounds in like a year, and it was super unhealthy. Um, and thank God I had people who worked really solid recovery programs who were like, "You're doing something unhealthy. Please stop that." And they, you know, helped me 
find my way out of that behavior. Um, so now it's just kind of a constant, it's not a battle. It's just a lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah. And I noticed that for me, I'm constantly working on acceptance and comfort with my own skin, comfort where I am. And the needle continues to move. I mean, I am so far from a finished product. And I, and I like what you said a lot too about, Hey man, like I allow myself the self pity. Like I don't go crazy. Right. I let people know I have people in my circle who I connect with, but you know, we got to take it easy on ourselves too. Like you said, the the human race period, forget about just the alcoholic. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's, there's no, there's no shame or crime in having a bad mood. You know, like I didn't get sober to only operate on one level. Like part of the human condition is being sad or depressed. And, you know, like it came to a point in, you know, a couple of years ago where I realized that I maybe had a depressive side that was deeper than I realized that I was, that, that I was addressing. And, and I thought outside help for that. And that meant an immeasurable amount of, of good for me. Um, because that's one of those things that like, when you take away drinking, the, I think the tendency to abuse yourself is still there in various ways to not take care of yourself. And over the course of, of, of sobriety, I've learned to take better care of myself, both inside and out. Have you realized that self-esteem comes with that? I mean, for you, like, Oh God. Oh yeah. And it's, it's so funny. Like I really wish schools had imparted on us a better description and idea of what self-esteem is because it's not ego. It's acceptance. You know, it's not like I'm great. It's like, I'm good. You know, like I'm not too bad. What any, I I can't keep you forever. Anything else? I, I mean, it's, it's, I'm so grateful that it's becoming part of the conversation these days. Um, you know, I, for a long time, and I still try, I'm kind of a purist as far as like, if you're in a program that practices anonymity, practice that anonymity and, you know, but don't be afraid of the stigma and and don't be afraid to share your, your stuff with people. Um, so again, like I don't align myself publicly with anything, um, formal, but it's there and obviously people can read, you know, in between the lines, but I'm super grateful that, um, people like you, people that are putting this out there, are reminding more and more people that help is there. Like you don't have to feel as bad as you feel for as long as you think, you know, like this, this level of care and help and recovery is it's there, you know? So the biggest, you know, it's kind of that stupid saying that they apply to like working out of like 99% showing up and 1% sweat, you know, like the biggest, the biggest threat, alcoholics isn't alcohol it's not asking for help you said it all hey well last thing how do you cover the oscars in a pandemic (laughs) from the couch (laughs) (laughs) in the same way that i attended movies during a pandemic like that is it is going to be i'm going to be so comfortable i'll be live tweeting um what's your twitter handle by the way and your instagram and all that stuff uh, both are the same. So Twitter and Instagram are at Damian Holbrook, D-A-M-I-A-N Holbrook, H-O-L-B-R-O-O-K. Um, so yeah, I'll just be live tweeting the Oscars. The Oscars this year are, I mean, it's really just going to be an oddity to see how it goes. Um, 
But for, for TV Guide, we're far more interested in, like, the SAG Awards and the Golden Globes and the Emmys because that's the TV stuff, the movies. But, again, like you see it, the movies are all on TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All these things were on Netflix or Hulu. Um, so, yeah, the Oscars. I, what I'm more interested in is how are we going to cover the red carpet. And how are, how are we? I don't know. I don't know how they're – I mean, this is the thing where – couple weeks out and we still haven't seen a, a physical plan as to what the Oscars will look like this year. I mean, they don't have a host. I'm like, well, they don't, they don't have a physical space really because these actors don't want to go live. And so it's just a whole mess. And hopefully this is the last time we have to deal with it. Best show on TV. Nobody's watching. Best show on TV. Nobody's watching. Our best show on TV. People haven't watched oh. yet. You told my brother Michael Kingdom, and I watched it, dude, and I swear oh my God. It, it was so unbelievable. Okay. So unbelievable. So Kingdom is on Netflix right now. It's leaving Netflix soon, so go watch it uh, now. HBO Max just picked up Happy Endings, the old ABC series that ran for three seasons, one of the funniest shows I've ever watched. Um, Mayor of Easttown premieres this weekend on HBO with Kate Winslet. I saw that. Yeah, okay, okay. I saw, I, I'm excited about that. So good. So not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and then for pure just entertainment and escapism, I would go with, okay, so I love uh, Breeders on FX, which is just a British comedy with Martin Freeman about a couple with three kids or two kids that is just, it's a slice of life and it's hilarious. And um Mike, yeah, Mike is giving me the thumbs up. He likes Breeders. Oh, yeah. Breeders is great. Um, what we do in the shadows is amazing. Um, I love there's a, and the magicians, which is a show that I always go back to. Um, it was on FX for five seasons. It's on Netflix. Now it is, it is so good. It's kind of a mix of, it's basically like if Harry Potter was set at grad school and, um, and it tackles everything from like trauma and child abuse and abandonment and mental illness and like, but all wrapped up in the world of magic. And it's very cool. Um, so yeah, so that I would always pitch to people. If you're looking for something that, that has levels and will also make you laugh a lot, that. Uh, dude, I could hold you hostage. I love you. I appreciate you. I, <laughs> I, I, love I, it. I, 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 I appreciate your you. time. Best, best actor that I we like have, best actor we haven't heard of yet. Jonathan Tucker, I will all again another one. Jonathan Tucker, who's he's on NBC's Debris now, but he was on Kingdom, and then he was on the Black. Oh, Donald. he's awesome! He's, yes, yes. He's in. He is probably one of the finest actors of his generation. He has never turned in a bad performance. He was Jay he, on Kingdom. He was Jay. Yeah. Yeah. And he is. He's tremendous, and he's on an NBC Sci-Fi series now called Debris, and the level. The level of authenticity and just devotion he has is staggering. He's so watchable. All right, we got to get out of here. Dude, I appreciate you so right. much. Thanks, Damien. Dude, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, I will talk man. talk to you later. Please let me know the next time you come home. I will. I will. I will let you know. Excellent, man. I will talk to you later. All right, Damien. Thanks, man. Later. All right. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. 
Once again, I'm Pete Souza, and of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. <laughs>